although we've only had two services, we're actually as a whole church in the middle of a series from the book of Colossians in the Bible. And uh, it's actually a letter written by a man named Paul to uh, a bunch of Christians who were part of a new church in Colossae. And Paul had never actually met these Christians before. He actually wrote his letter to them from prison. He often ended up in prison because of his faith in Jesus. But he'd heard of this church and he prayed for this church faithfully. And since he was one of the main Christian teachers of the day, he also wrote to them to encourage them, to teach them, to show them what it looked like to be a follower of Jesus. And often in his letters, he would address issues that were coming up. All new things have teething problems. All new things um, can end up in a bit of trouble if they lose their way. And there seems to be an issue threatening the very heart of this church's faith. And we're not told explicitly what the issue is, but people who study this kind of stuff, very clever people, all seem to agree that it's probably something to do with Christians being encouraged by self-made spiritual leaders to add other things into their faith in case Jesus just wasn't quite enough. They just wanted to be on the safe side. They want to add some other, a few other bits and pieces because we're not quite sure that Jesus is enough. And so they, they, wore, they were encouraged to wear amulets around their neck, to pray to angels, um, to protect them from evil spirits. They were encouraged to practice different rites and rituals. Um, and, and there was a whole mix of different pagan and Jewish beliefs thrown at them, and they were encouraged to do that. And there was also a big push for intellectual intellectualism and cramming as much knowledge and um, information as possible, wherever they could get it from, in order to uh, attain this spiritual high or this spiritual fullness. And so, so this letter comes in that time and Paul is writing and he's basically, it's an attempt to restore Jesus to the center of their faith, to bring it right back to Jesus, right back um, to the center of their lives. And he wanted to remind them that Jesus wasn't one of, he wasn't just important, he was central. Because there was lots of other things going on, lots of other people vying for their attention. And he's saying, no, remember what you were first told. Remember what you first responded to. And it was Jesus. And so he's saying, come on, get him back to the center. And uh, he said, all the wisdom and all the knowledge you ever could want are found in one person, and it's Jesus Christ. There's no need to look anywhere else. So that's the background of what we're about to read. You may not understand fully what we're about to read, but it's all right. Um, I'm going to try and give it a shot to explain to you. So if you don't have a Bible, there are a few at the sides. Someone can pass them along. Give us a wave. If you'd like a Bible, it will magically appear. Magically is probably not a good word to use in church, but <laughs> it will appear. Um, and it's in a book called Colossians. Someone with a church Bible, can you find the number, please? It is Colossians chapter 1. Verse 24. Does anyone have a Bible from the slides? It's in the last half of the, the Bible, and it's called Colossians. What's that? 1182. Great. Can I hear a good? So good? You ready to hear from God? Tell the person next to you you're ready to hear from God. So ready. All right, let's read. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. 
Now, this is Paul writing a letter to the Colossian church, and he's saying, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave to me. I shouldn't have turned around now, I've lost my... Whoa. Uh, the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles. Gentiles is basically a word for you and I, unless you're Jewish. Um, it's just all other people apart from Jews. Um, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. My goal is that they be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. This is what I was referring to with all the, the knowledge that people were seeking. In order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith is in Christ. Your faith in Christ is. Sorry. Amen. That's pretty good stuff right there, isn't it? Brilliant. So responsive. I love it. <laughs> you'll learn. You'll learn. You'll learn. We'll get there one day. So Paul talks about this mystery of God. But when he uses the word mystery, it's not really a mystery like that you have to solve clues and it's hard to, to work it out. It actually just means a secret that's been hidden but now is revealed. This is what he's talking about. And I reckon that this mystery that he's talking about has to be something pretty special because he keeps saying here that he has joy in his suffering. What kind of crazy person enjoys suffering? That's just not right. This, listen, um, throughout the Bible we see that Paul has endured many hardships. Here are some of them. He was beaten several times, whipped, jailed. He endured long, dangerous journeys, shipwrecks, hunger, hostility from his own people. And yet he says that he rejoices in his sufferings for the sake of his church. He's basically saying to this group of people, my pain is your gain. My pain is your gain. And what a gain it is. I'm about to tell you this message. And it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's in Verse 27, and that's where we're going to focus. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what does that mean? Don't answer that back. That is not an answering back kind of question. Okay, let's start with glory. We're going to start at the end. Um, I've called this message hope and glory. Right from the passage, Jesus Christ, our hope and glory. So Mark mentioned the Paralympics. I think this morning I checked as well. We are just connected there. By the way, this is my husband, Mark. We are married. Um, it, <laughs> it is so good. It's been a wonderful 
year for Team GB. Did anyone follow the Olympics? Even if you're not sporty, I am not in the least bit sporty, but I love the Olympics. I get very patriotic. It's great. Now, we have 67 medals in total from the Olympics. And right now, the last time I checked, 15 golds in the Paralympics. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this. Winning a gold for your country is a huge deal. Your whole life in four-year cycles is built. Everything you're working towards, um, the culmination of all your hard work, comes together in an Olympic year. Did you know that if you're from Singapore and you win an Olympic gold medal, not only do you get the gold medal, but you get a whopping $753,000 as a gift from your government. If you're South African, any South Africans here? <laughs> if you're South African and you win a gold medal, you get $36,000 as a gift from your government. If you're American and you win a gold medal, you get $25,000 as a gift from your government. If you're British and you win a gold medal, you get zero dollars as a gift from your government. You see, we Brits were in it for one thing and one thing only, the glory. The sheer glory of winning. All we want is the honor and the praise and the admiration of our nation, and that is reward enough. And we bask in that glory for a while, but in the back of their, our minds, we know that there will always be a chance that someone else will come along and beat your record, and the glory will shift to someone else. And then what we do is we reminisce, don't we? And we say, remember those days and we call them the glory days and we wonder if we'll ever see the likes of them again but I want to say to you this morning forget about the Olympics as followers of Jesus as believers in a God who is with us and for us and has filled us with purpose and passion these are the glory days today is a glory day and our greatest most glorious day are still to come our greatest and most glorious days are still to come. They're still ahead of us in an eternity spent with our great and glorious God. And this is what Paul's talking about. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word hope has been weakened, I suppose, in our language. Um, we think of hope as crossing your fingers and blowing on a dandelion and wishing that you know all your dreams will come true or blow, blowing out a candle on your birthday cake. But um, the meaning of hope here is completely the opposite. It's actually translated as a sure certainty. A sure certainty. Christian hope is when God has said something, he's promised something is going to happen, and then we put our confident trust that that promise will come to pass. And this is what he means by the word hope. So don't think of the fingers crossed, wishing kind of hope. He's saying this hope is assurance. It's assurance of glory and it's a glory that's been secured for us. In Romans 5, 2, it says, because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Now that is good. Yes? Amen. But this glory that he's talking about is far greater than any glory you would ever receive for achieving something um, like a gold medal. Uh, 
we're talking about a completely different kind of glory when it comes to God. His glory. His glory is completely different. From the very first page of the Bible to the very last page of the Bible, God paints a picture of his glory spanning time and nations and history. And his glory is so great and it's so big. It's actually almost impossible to describe it in, in words. And just as you think you're, you're getting to the beginning, um, or just as you think you're beginning to get to grips with God's glory, he reveals more of himself. He reveals more of his glory. And he reminds us just how small we are and just how big he is. So we're going to look for a little bit at what is God's glory. Say to the person next to you, what is God's glory? Now turn to the other person that you ignored and say it to them. Hmm? Brilliant. All right. So the simplest way to think about it is thinking of God's glory in two ways. First of all, his internal glory. That is everything that makes him glorious. Everything about his glory, it's all his characteristics, it's his authority, his power, his wisdom, his presence. All of that, all of his character contained in God's glory. And the simplest way to think about it is glory is everything that makes God, God. Everything that makes God, God. And then secondly, if you think about the external glory, which is really just a display of his internal glory. So often it's referred to as radiance. You know when a person radiates something? Excuse me. Um, his external expression of glory is described in so many ways in the Bible. It comes in so many forms. And so we're going to have a look at seven glorious things about God's glory. And I am utterly devastated that I couldn't make them all begin with G. Seven glorious things about God's glory. Because even his glory is glorious. It's good. I'm preaching right now. Come on. All right. So are you ready? Seven things. This is perfect for people who love to take notes. Number one. His glory is good. Brilliant. When God gave Moses the job of leading his people, Moses said to him, I don't want to do this unless your presence is with me. Otherwise, how will people know that you're with me? What's going to distinguish me and our people from the other people of the earth? And God says to Moses, uh, okay, my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. You don't need to worry about it. And Moses was like, great. But he wants more. And he says to God, please let me see your glory. And the interesting thing is God doesn't say, okay, now my glory is going to pass in front of you. He says, my goodness is going to pass in front of you. God himself calls his glory his goodness. All the goodness of God is caught up in his glory and he caused it to pass in front of Moses. It was, his goodness is so great that he knew that Moses couldn't even bear to be around it, as in it was so great and so big. He told Moses to go and hide in a rock, and he put his hand and covered Moses to shield him from the sheer brilliance of his goodness. The Hebrew word means 
goodness, nothing is withheld. All of God's goodness poured out continually. That's what it means. So number one, his glory is good. Number two, his glory is majestic. When God um, passed in front of Moses, he didn't just say, I will make my goodness pass right in front of you. He then said something else and he said, I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And you think, okay, he's walking past, he's saying, I am God. And his goodness is all around. But you have to get the significance of it. When a king enters his courts, a herald would loudly proclaim the name of the king for everyone to hear. It drew attention to the fact that this was the king and he was sovereign and he was majestic and everyone should worship him and everyone should listen to the king and pay attention to the king. This is the majestic king. So the Lord, it says, came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name. And as he passed in front of Moses, he said, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving rebellion and sin. His glory is majestic like that of a king. Number three, his glory is radiant. In the book of Ezekiel, um, he describes God saying his radiance is like the sunlight, dazzling and bright. In Job, it says he's clothed in dazzling splendor. Now, I want you to imagine, we used to live in Australia. I couldn't really cope with the heat. Mark loved it. But I don't know if you've ever been in a very hot country and have come from a dark air-conditioned room, maybe like the cinema or something, and you walk out and you just feel the warmth wrap all around you. And you it's so bright, you have to shield your eyes. And you just feel that warmth and that light. And this is how he's describing God's glory as radiant. It's just radiating off him. It's wrapping you up in warmth and light. And um, he also says that, this, this, I think this is funny, he says, brightness everywhere. The way a rainbow springs out of the sky on a rainy day, that's what it was like. And then as a side note, he said, oh, I don't think he, that's not in the Bible. I added that O in. Oh, <laughs> it turned out to be the glory of God. It's like, wow, you know. Habakkuk in the Bible, he describes God's glory like lightning bolts shooting from his hand. Radiance, light. Dazzling, brightness, you'd have to put your shades on. Nobody would ever look at the sun without sunglasses on. That would just be silly. And God's radiance is a million times more than the sun. This is how amazing God's glory is. Uh, everyone okay? Painting a picture here of God's glory. And actually, I still don't think I'm doing it any justice, but here we go. Number four, his glory is terrifying. I almost didn't put this one in, but the fact is, this is truth. His glory is terrifying. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to a school play or you remember being in one when you were a kid. And have you ever noticed that line in the school nativity play where it says, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep, just doing their job. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them and they were terrified. It said they were terrified. In fact, 
looking through the Bible, anytime an angel shows up, he has to first of all say to the person, it's okay, don't be afraid. Every single instance of an angel appearing, it's okay, don't be afraid. There's none of this tinsel and curls and, you know, little gowns. Angels are warriors of God, carriers of his light. And wherever they went, the glory of the Lord went with them. And they had to say, don't be afraid. In Deuteronomy 5, it says, the Lord has shown us his glory and his majesty. And we have even heard his voice from the fire. And then they say, today we have seen that a person can actually live even if God speaks with them. Now we can take from that verse that it seems they were actually quite surprised that they came away alive and intact after meeting with God. His glory was so terrifying. And on many occasions, people's only response to the glory of God was to fall down on their faces in awe and in wonder. And that's what Ezekiel says when he describes God's glory as a rainbow. He said, when I saw this, I fell to my knees, my face to the ground. His glory is terrifying. Number five, everyone okay? Good. His glory is great. The fact that I have seven things to say about his glory, and I could actually say seven more, and I could say seven more, and I could say seven more, in itself tells you that his glory is great. It's huge, it's expansive, it's weighty. In fact, the word glory means weight. Several times in the Old Testament, we're told how the priests could not even enter the temple to do their work because the glory of God was so great in that place. It's described as a cloud that came and filled every part of the building. They couldn't even go in. I was trying to imagine that, like a big fluffy cloud in a room and not being able to get in because of it. But you know it's more than that. It's not just a big fluffy cloud. It's the presence of God, his glory filling that place to the point where you cannot enter. It's so so big. It was God's way of saying, I'm here. I'm here. I'm close. I'm always with you. Number six, his glory is creative. This is probably one of my favorites. Have you ever marveled at a beautiful sunset? It's like a painting in the sky purples and oranges and reds and all sorts of colors no one sunset ever the same have you ever looked up at the night sky and just been blown away by the cosmos by the milky way by the northern lights by the vastness of it all have you ever thought about the internal workings of the human body how on earth it all works together they are perfectly all placed in the right place hopefully, for most of us, working together, making us live, uh, breathe. It's incredible. Have you thought about the fact that there's however many billion people on the earth, yet we are unique in our fingerprints and unique in our personalities, unique in our character? Have you looked at a leaf through a microscope and seen the design that is there? Beautiful. Things like, it's amazing, scientists say that if the sun was any closer to us, we would fry. But if it was any further away, we would freeze. It's exactly in the right place to sustain us, to give us what we need to live. Have you been to a mountaintop and looked over the view and just gone, 
Wow. How can anything of such beauty and such design have just appeared from nothing? A symphony doesn't just compose itself. There's a composer. A painting doesn't just paint itself. There's a painter. And if there were kids in here, I'd say, a Lego kit design doesn't just appear. There's a designer. There's a builder. What I'm trying to say is, the beauty of this earth and everything in it points to God as creator and designer, and it proclaims his glory. Psalm 19 says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. And they speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Isn't that the truth? Even if you don't know Jesus, even if you've never heard of Jesus, there's something in the display of God's glory in the creation of this world that speaks of him and points to a creator and a designer. Isn't that amazing? Isaiah 6 says, the whole earth is full of his glory everywhere you look. And actually, the more you have eyes to see it, the more you'll see it. It's all through creation, from the tiniest little things to the most massive mountain and in the ocean. But here's the thing. Even after all of that, Ephesians 2.10 says about us, we are God's masterpiece. Every artist has their masterpiece, the culmination of everything, and it's good. And the Bible says we are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things that he planned for us long ago. We are uniquely and gloriously designed and created by God. His glory is woven into your DNA. And we are made by a glorious God to reflect his glory. That is our purpose, to reflect the glory of God. You know, when a, when a piece of music moves you your heart gives glory to the composer the piece of music itself is not the thing that is glorified the composer is when we marvel at the beauty of a magnificent painting we honor the artist and we give him glory so it follows we are like a work of art that brings glory to our creator and as we live each day saying god made me he also sustains me, and he's my great hope, and when we bring him glory. Do you know, we can't state it often enough, but God loves you. He loves the way he made you. He thought you up even before he made the world. And I wonder if some of us here this morning find that hard to believe hard to accept. You struggle to know your own worth. You battle every day to know that you are valued. Your self-esteem is low. You don't like the way you look. You don't know what your purpose is. You're just feeling a bit lost. And can I tell you this morning that God loves you. He loves the way he made you. He thought you up even before that he made the world. He made you magnificently. He put his glory in you. He knows you. You're more valuable to him than all the treasure of the earth. You're his masterpiece. If you want to read more about that, 
I suggest you look up Psalm 139. I'll just read a little bit about it uh, from it. This is good, right? God is good. Uh, I'm just going to read this. O Lord, you've examined my heart and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down and stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me. I'll skip on a bit. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvellous. How well I know it. And it goes on and on. Just saying, he thought of you. He thought of you. He designed you. He created you. He loves you. And in Jeremiah 29, 11, he says, he, also, he not only created you and designed you, but he has plans to give you a hope and a future. Of course, if he's our creator, he knows what's best for our lives, right? Of course, if he's our creator, he knows the purpose of our lives. He made us for his glory. He made us for relationship with him. And he says, nothing else in this earth will satisfy you until you find that connection with me. So that is, his glory is creative. Finally, excuse me a second. This is awkward. Do you like my drinking? I'll say water. It's good, so good. Finally, number seven, his glory is Jesus. If you have ever asked the question in your mind, who is God? Then all you need to do is look to Jesus. In the past, the prophets spoke for God, revealed God, uh, re represented God. But now we have Jesus. And he is revealing who God is to us. John uh, 14, Jesus says, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Colossians 1.15, just before the passage that we read this morning, it says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We look at Jesus and we see the God who cannot be seen. We look at Jesus and we see God's original purpose in everything he created. And in Hebrews 1 it says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is the exact representation of his being. So you want to know what God is like how he works, what his glory looks like, then begin to look at Jesus. Put him in the center and start looking at him. Fix your eyes on him. And then you'll know and you'll see and you'll experience the glory of God. So there you go. Seven things about God's glory. I've painted a picture of his, of his glory. But where do we fit into the picture? Obviously, I've just explained that we are God's creation. We glorify him with our lives. But what does that actually mean for us today? Trying to live the best life that we can. And if you're asking that, that is a great question. We don't match the glory of God in any way. If you think you do, mm. 
We don't live up to the glory of God. We know it, and God knows it. He says in Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you imagine a target with a bullseye, and right in the middle is God's glory, his perfection, his holiness. And every time we fire an arrow, it misses. It doesn't matter if it misses by this much or this much. It's still a miss. We've missed the mark. And so if God is holy and perfect and can't have anyone who's imperfect and unholy in his presence, how can we even be here this morning singing his praises, saying we welcome you with praise? You know, we love to be in your presence. How is that possible? Which is another great question. And God says, don't worry, I have a plan. It's a glorious plan. And it's a plan that's been hidden for generations. But now I'm revealing it to you. I'm revealing it to everyone. It doesn't matter who they are, what they've done, where they've been, how old they are. He's revealing it. And he says this plan means that you can be where you were always meant to be. In my presence. In relationship with me. Doing life with me as it should be done. And this is the plan. This is God. He's saying, I'm going to give up my glory and give it to you. I'm going to give up my righteousness, my holiness, and I'm going to give it to you. It will cost me everything. But I love you and you're worth it. I'm going to come and live amongst you. I'm, I'm going to lay aside my majesty. I'm not going to come as a king on a chariot with hordes of armies behind me. I'm going to come as a baby, humbly. I'm going to be known as Jesus. And I'll grow up and I'll go through life, fully human, experiencing all the ups and downs, facing trials and temptations. I'll know what it's like to be fully human and to suffer. And ultimately, I'll give up my life for you. We'll do an exchange. How about that? Let's do an exchange. I'll take the punishment for everything you've ever done and everything you will ever do. All that stuff that falls short of the glory of God. And instead of getting what you deserve, you'll get mercy and grace and love lavished upon you. That's good news, right? And then, because, of, because all the glory and all the power belongs to me, I'm going to defeat death. I'm going to be resurrected. Which means, if I've defeated death, it has no power. Which means, death no longer has a hold on you. That future is in your, eternity is in your future. He says, if you put your trust in me and my saving power, if you put me at the center of your life, I'll move in. I'll take center stage. I'll take up residence in your heart. And you know what? In that moment, for the rest of your days, when God looks at you, can I borrow you for a second? When God looks at you, can you stand in front of me, please? Pretend he's Jesus. He does have the hair, almost. <laughs> yeah, pretty sure he did. Jesus promises to move in. 
And when God looks at us, all he sees is Jesus now. Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' perfection, Jesus' holiness. You know, we walk about, and he doesn't see me, my, my sin. He sees Jesus in front of me, going before me. You can come back now. Do you get the point? Jesus moves in. God sees Jesus. God says, you're okay. You can come into my presence. Come anytime you want. In fact, you don't need to go on a pilgrimage to find me. You don't need to go up to the heavens to find me. I am right here living in your heart. I am so close. You will never know how close I am. And this is his promise. God looks at us and he sees his own glory. He sees his glorious creation. He sees Jesus. His presence is real. His presence is powerful. And it's in us. And so to finish, the verse says, Christ in me the hope of glory. Remember, the hope is not a wishful thinking, fingers crossed kind of hope. It is an assurance. Jesus Christ himself is our assurance of glory, of a future glory, of God's presence here right now with us, of an eternity secured with God in heaven, all because of Jesus. Jesus is the very best hope we have. There's nobody or nothing good enough, glorious enough, worthy enough, strong enough, steadfast enough to live in the center of a heart that was created by God and for God. We say, Jesus, be the center. Be the center. And when Jesus is at the center of our lives, we truly start to live. We find purpose. We receive forgiveness. We experience joy Literally, our life comes bursting to life. And God's glory, remember I said that the word glory is weight. God's glory has this weight about it. That when you put it on the scales, no matter what's on the other side of the scales, his glory is always going to tip the scales, always. So when you're feeling hopeless, his glory comes and fills you with hope. And the weight of his glory is strong and great. This picture of Christ in us, the Bible also says it's Christ in us and us in Christ. It's this ongoing abiding in each other. If it helps to think about it like this, we are like a bottle in the ocean. The ocean water is in us, but we are also in the ocean. But think about the vastness of the ocean compared to the fragility of the bottle. This is Christ's promise to come and live and dwell inside us. But reminds us of how amazing God's glory is, how vast his glory is. Jesus wants to move in. And if he's already in but he's been pushed to the side, he wants to be center stage. And by doing that, we give glory to God. Let's stand.